0: and became an adult. And as a teenager, I was obsessed with the sport of basketball. Uh, And I just love basketball, so all of my dreams about doing great things revolved around the sport of basketball, and in particular, I wanted to experience the greatest thing that you can experience in the sport of basketball, which is slam dunking on somebody else's face. Uh... There's just nothing else like it in any other sport. uh, If if you're an NBA fan you know that the dunk contest was last night and I watched it and it was great. And that's cool but dunking in a game on somebody to me is just like the greatest thing that you can do in the sport of basketball. Because the player with the ball is dribbling up and they get through and then they see the rim they jump in the air and then the defender sees them and they jump in the air and the defender is thinking you can't get by me, I'm going to stop you. And, and the guy with the ball is like, you can't stop me, I'm going to dunk this thing. And the, the, the defender's like, you can't, I'm going to stop you. You're not going to get it. And the guy's like, you can't stop me. Bam! And he just slams it right into the rim. And the crowd goes wild. <clears throat> and everyone is just so excited and they're screaming. Um, to me, the best dunks of all time are the ones where they fly through the air, they dunk the ball, and the defender falls down. And the offensive player is just kind of standing over top of them. And they, like, look down at them. And they're like, yeah, I told you, you couldn't stop me. And then, you know, they probably say some words that we're not going to say in church. They look at them, they say stuff, and then they just turn around and they, they run back down the court. And everyone's screaming, and I just have always like, man, that is what greatness looks like. That's greatness. Unfortunately, I did not have that kind of greatness within me. So um, I was never allowed, I was never able to experience playing in the NBA. I never really played, I never played in college. I was never able to really dunk on somebody like that other than my brother in our backyard on a nine-foot hoop. That was kind of cool, but it's not the same. But for me, that was my image of what it meant to be great, to do great things. Now, for all of us, I'm guessing that you can probably think of a definition of greatness that you have in your mind. Maybe it's something that you had as a child, or maybe it's even something in your mind now. We all long to have lives that are meaningful, lives that serve a purpose, lives that are worth taking note of. We all want to get to the end of our lives and say, yes, what I did mattered, what I did, I did something great. And so my bet is that every single one of us can think of some picture in our mind of what it looks like for us to be great. However, there is a problem. In the world we live in, and in our society in particular, there's a very specific definition of what greatness looks like. In our world, greatness has a clear definition, and it's this. Greatness in our world is measured by what we achieve, what we accumulate, and what we look like. So in our society, if you're going to be great, it means it's all based on what you've achieved, what you've accumulated, and what you look like. So in the basketball world, LeBron James... Is considered great because he has multiple titles, he's won MVP, he's huge, he's powerful, and he's gotten a dunk on a lot of people, incidentally. He's great because of what he's achieved. Um, guys like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are considered great because of what they've accumulated, how they've changed the world, but Bill Gates has more money than most of us can even imagine. He's just accumulated so much stuff. And then there's people like um, Beyonce who is just beautiful and talented and when you look at her you're just like, wow, this is a, a, a super talented person. And so she's great. In, in our world, greatness is based on what we achieve, accumulate, and what we look like. To be truly successful it means that you're beautiful and strong and smart and extremely accomplished and unfortunately by that definition, I am not doing so well when it comes to greatness. Greatness. I've not not achieved very much that the world wants to look at and say, look at what that guy has done. I have not accumulated that much wealth, at least not by American standards. And to this moment, I can honestly say there is no magazine that has called me up and asked me to model for them. I personally think that's their loss, but, oh, wow, thank you. By the world standards, I have not done anything that great. But thankfully, there's another definition of what greatness looks like. And I think it's a truer and greater, and actually the one true definition of what it looks like to live a great life. It comes from the teaching of Jesus that he gave to his disciples over 2,000 years ago. And so even though it's an ancient teaching um, taught halfway around the world, I believe it applies to us today, and I think it gives us a picture of what it really looks for a human being to live their fullest potential, to live to the absolute greatest potential that they have. So what I'd like us to do is we're going to read, uh, this story from the book of Mark. And we're gonna be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through this story bit by bit, bit. I'm sorry. We're gonna read it piece by piece, kinda slowly. And my hope is that we experience what his disciples were thinking and feeling so that we can see what Jesus' definition of greatness is and how that applies to us today. And our goal is to also discover what this means for us, for you all as a church here at Grace Chapel. What would greatness look like for us as individuals? And what would greatness look like for you as a local body of Christ? So here we go. I'm going to start reading in um, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And I'm just going to read a couple verses. This is talking about Jesus and his disciples. It says, "...they went from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, "...the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise." But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus and his disciples are on the road. They're traveling. He's heading towards his final destination on earth, which is Jerusalem. So they're traveling and Jesus doesn't want people to know what's going on. Because uh, crowds of people would follow him and flock around him. And he's trying to teach his disciples something important. And it's hard to have an an intimate conversation when you're surrounded by crowds. So he's trying to keep a low profile. And they're going along. And he tells them this. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. And the Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. It goes back to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, that you'll have to read later on. But he he often called himself that. And he says, the Son of Man is going to um, suffer and die and, and be betrayed. And in the book of Mark, if you ever read the book of Mark, I just want to encourage you to look to keep these three questions in your mind, because the author of Mark just keeps hammering these three questions over and over again. The questions are this, who is Jesus, what did he come to do, and how will we respond? Who is Jesus, what did he come to do, and how will we respond? And earlier in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus had straight up asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Who do you guys think I am? And the disciples had said, Peter said, You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the promised king that Israel has been waiting for. And the disciples understood that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed it. So they got the first part right. But they just didn't understand what he came to do. In their mind, the Messiah was going to be this king that was going to come and overthrow the Roman government and usher in a new earthly kingdom. And Jesus is trying to show them over and over again, I am the Messiah, but I'm just coming to do something different than you expected. He said, um, they they just didn't really understand what was going on, so Jesus told them that he came to suffer and die and rise again. In other words, uh, actually, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus goes on and he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus came to live a life of self-sacrificial love towards others that would culminate in his death on the cross. Now, even though Jesus' teaching was pretty clear, and this is the second of three times that Jesus is going to say this kind of stuff to his disciples, his disciples just don't get it. They don't understand what's going on, but um, they're confused and they're afraid to ask him about it. They don't want to bring it up with him, so instead they choose to do something different. They spend their time doing something else. Uh, And so let's look at what they do next. I'm going to start reading in verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So, um, as they're traveling, this argument breaks out between the disciples, and they're trying to figure out in, in Jesus' kingdom, who's going to be first and who's going to be second? When he becomes king, who gets to be his, you know, first in command? Who gets to be his vice president? Who gets to be like the speaker of the house? We're trying to figure out who's in what order. And I can imagine the, the conversation going something like this. If you read the context of Mark, I can just imagine Peter saying something like this. I can imagine him looking at the other 11 disciples or the other, you know, some of the other disciples and saying, listen. If we're trying to figure out who's the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, let's keep this in mind. Jesus just took me and James and John up onto a mountain, and we saw this amazing thing, this transfiguration thing, and it was so unbelievable that we can't even tell you about it. Jesus actually told us, he swore us to secrecy. It was so important, we're so special, we can't even tell you guys what happened up there. That's how special we are. And then, do you remember what happened when we came down the mountain? Remember what you guys were trying to do? You were trying to cast out a demon, and you couldn't even do it. Jesus had to bail you out. So if we're talking about who's the greatest, it's clearly me and James and John, and the rest of you are just going to have to settle for being in the top 12. I mean, top 12 is good. It's just not top three. And then I can imagine the other disciples looking at Peter and saying, really, are we going to go here, Peter? Remember just a couple of days ago when Jesus asked you who he was and you said you're the Christ and then you said something else and he got really mad? Remember what he called you? Yeah, he said, get behind me, Satan. He called you Satan. We maybe had problems driving out a demon but we've never been compared to the prince of darkness himself. Probably the reason he took you three guys up the mountain was because he knew you needed the most help. So if we're talking about greatness... You guys are clearly like the JV squad and we're the best. And, and I can just see this argument going on and on and on as they travel. And when Jesus gets to this house that they stop in, he simply asks them this question. He says, What were you discussing along the way? Man, I love Jesus so much because... <laughs> This is just a fabulous question. And it's one I understand so well. For my second job, I I coach gymnastics, so I work with youngsters all the time. And what we commonly do is I'll get to an event and I'll line kids up. Say it's a group of 12. I line them up. And I'm trying to explain something important about a new station we're going to do or a drill or some skill that we're working on. And I'm talking and I'm looking at each one and I'm saying important things. and, And over here, without fail there'll be three kids just engaged in their own conversation about whatever. Just completely ignoring me, talking to each other, chatting, chatting, and they'll chat the whole time I'm explaining stuff, they're chatting. And when that happens, often what I do is I just stop talking, and I just kind of stare at them. And eventually it's like they can feel my stare boring into their head or something, so they stop and they look over at me, And I'll just ask them the same, a simple question. I'll say, what were you guys talking about? And when I ask that, without fail, the same thing happens every time. Their eyes get really wide. And they get really quiet. (laughs) Because they know I'm not going to be happy with what they were talking about. Because it has no bearing on what was happening in that moment. So they just kind of stare at me. They could have been talking for 15 minutes, and now they don't have a word to say. Because they know what they were going to say to me I would not be satisfied with, I would not be happy about. And Jesus takes his disciples and he treats them like these little kids and he just says, what were you talking about on the way? And they go, hmm, what, us? No, I, I don't know, I, I think someone's calling my name. Sorry Jesus, I gotta go. Like, uh. <laughs> it's so precious, like they know, they're not going to tell him because they know that he's going to be disappointed with what they were arguing about. So then, um, Jesus starts to teach them. And in verse uh, 35, we're told this. It says, and he, that is Jesus, he sat down and called the twelve. So he's in this house, he sits down and he calls the twelve. And, and commentators and Bible scholars will tell us, this is the posture of a formal teaching. So when the rabbi goes and sits down and he calls his disciples over, that's like saying, class is now in session. Come on over, sit down, I'm going to teach you something and it's going to be important. So he calls them over and he starts to teach them. And and here's the first thing he says, again in verse 35. He says, if anyone would be first. If anyone would be first. And I can imagine in just the nanoseconds after he says this, that there are two things that flash through the disciples' minds. He says, if anyone would be first, and the first thing they think is, Dear God, He knows. He knows what we were fighting about. He knows that we were fighting about who's greatest. He knows we were arguing about who's the first. He knows. We're caught. And then I think the second thing that flashed through their mind was this is great news. We've been trying to figure out who's first in God's kingdom, we're trying to figure out who's the greatest. And now Jesus is going to teach us straight up how to be first. This is awesome. He's going to describe what it looks like to be first in his kingdom. Now we have to understand that the disciples lived in a society where social status was extremely important. It was a shame and honor society in which your standing in the community determined a great deal about the quality of your life. If you were shunned by your community, you basically became invisible and you had less opportunity in life and no one wanted to be invisible. So it was very important that you kept a certain social status. In the Roman Empire, social status was even more important. And there was even a clear description of how to get to the top that was called the cursus honorum. Uh, The cursus honorum is Latin for the course of honor or the ladder of offices. And it was a detailed description of all the various offices you could hold in the political um, government at the time. And it described minimum terms for each position and how long you had to be there to qualify to the next one and how you would get from one level to the next. And the higher the ladder, the higher you got up the ladder, the greater you were. Uh, and the op- ultimate goal was to get to the top as fast as possible. So it wasn't just good to be at the top. The younger you were when you got to the top, the greater you were. If you could speed through and just do your minimum term at everything and you got to the top, you were considered the greatest of all. So there was just this clamoring to climb to the top at all costs. In the Roman Empire, greatness was measured by how quickly you could climb to the top, even if that meant you had to climb on on top of other people to get there. Uh, This was the, the society that the disciples lived in, and now Jesus is sitting them down and telling them how to be first in his kingdom. Jesus is about to describe to them his cursus honorum. He's about to describe his ladder to success in his kingdom. So I can imagine the disciples pulling out their notepads. They didn't have notepads, obviously, but pulling out metaphorical notepads, and they're just like, we're going to take notes. Maybe whatever Jesus says, Peter's thinking, I'm going to be better than these other 11 jokers here. I'm going to be the best. So if he tells me to read my Bible and memorize the book of Deuteronomy, I'm going to do it. If he tells me to cast out three demons a week, I'm going to do it. If he tells me to to feed 5,000 every month, I'm going to find a way to do it. So they take out their pens and they're ready and then Jesus starts to teach them. And he gives them, in classical Jesus fashion, he gives them a two-point sermon in one sentence that completely rocks their world. So here's what he says, um, starting in verse um, 35 again. He says, if anyone would be first he must be last of all. <laughs> so imagine his disciples like taking note they're like, alright, if anyone would be first point one, you must be last of all. Hmm. Well Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. How do you become first by being last? I don't get that. Okay, point one's kind of a dud but it looks like he's got another point we'll wait for point two, this one's going to be better point 2 he says if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all <laughs> so then they write down point 2 servant of all wait jesus i don't i don't get this how do you become great by being a servant how do you become first by being last this doesn't sound like the ladder to the top this sounds like the scare, the staircase to the basement or something and this is So amazing. In one sentence, Jesus has completely flipped their entire world upside down. Jesus is saying, in this world, greatness is measured by how fast you climb to the top of the social ladder. But this is not the case in my kingdom. In my kingdom, greatness is different. Greatness means that you go to the back of the line and you serve whoever you find there. Greatness means you go to the bottom and you live a life of self-sacrificial love towards others. It's a completely, it's a complete reversal in what the ladder to greatness looks like. Um, And he, Jesus knows that with this one sentence he's completely upset their view of the world. (laughs) So he gives them an object lesson to drive home the point. And here's what he says, starting in, in verse 36. It says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He takes a child and he says, If you welcome one of these, it's like you're welcoming me. And by default, that means you're welcoming God himself. Now this statement it doesn't hold the same weight for us because in our society um, children are, are valued and given a, a place of special honor in our society. Uh, we see children as precious and innocent and even pure. Uh, we see kids as valuable members of our society and um, they have the same basic human rights as anybody else. And I'm so glad <laughs> we live in a society like that. But this was not the case in the first century. In the first century... Um, Children were considered as insignificant as possible when it comes to social status. Lots of times they wouldn't even name their kids for a year or two because lots of times they would just die. Like The the mortality rate was very high. Um, In general, they were considered almost invisible at least until they were old enough to be valuable contributors to the society and the community. So children were just... Um, they were the lowest of the low. They were the least significant people on the planet. And Jesus says to his disciples, if you welcome one of these lowest members of society, it's like you're welcoming me. And in welcoming me, it's like you're welcoming God himself. <laughs> so, with his two point sermon, Jesus transforms their view of what greatness looks like. And with his one point illustration, He transforms their view of human value. He says, In God's kingdom, people are not based on what they do or how they contribute to society. They are not valued based on their social status or their great achievements. Rather, they are valued based simply on the fact that they are people created in the image of God and my Father in heaven loves them. Jesus is teaching him, his disciples that in the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as an insignificant human being. Every single human being that you and I have ever met should be welcomed, as if we're welcoming God himself. And at this point, I can just imagine the minds of the disciples melting. <laughs> you know, danger, overheat, overheat, my brain can't take it. And they're thinking like, man, if this is true, what on earth would this mean for our life? If this is really the path to greatness, what does this mean for our life? How does it apply to my life? And I think this is the same question that we should be asking ourselves today. And so what I'd like us to do is I'd like us to consider this question in two different forms. First, what does greatness look like for me? That is, individually, for each of us. What does greatness look like for me? And then second, what does greatness look like for us? For for Grace Chapel as a body of believers, what does true greatness actually look like in the 21st century? So first, what does greatness look like for me? Uh, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul was writing to a group of Christians that by all accounts um, were doing some really great stuff. They were very talented, they were performing miracles, they had all these spiritual gifts, and they were just, they were talented people. But there was a problem. Some of them were under the assumption that they were better than others because of their gifts, and so there was all this arguing going on. And they were looking at each other and they're like, yeah, he has that gift, but my gift is better. I'm firster. They're they're not as first as me, they're not as great as me. And so because of this, it was creating huge problems in the church. And, and the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, we call 1 Corinthians, to kind of address some of these issues. And it, towards the end of his letter in chapter 12, verse 31, he says this. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. In other words, he's about to describe what true greatness looks like. And he continues with these words. He says, If I speak all the languages of earth and angels but didn't love others I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and if I could understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even sacrificed my body. In other words, if I became a martyr, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. In other words, Paul is saying you can do all of these important religious and um, service things, and you should do these. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But if you're doing them and it's not based on love, you're completely missing the point. You're off base. You're not on the path to greatness. It's all about love. And then he goes on to describe what he means by the word love. He says this, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up. And he's talking about people. So it's like he's saying, love never gives up on people. Love never loses faith in people. Love is always hopeful for people. Love endures through every circumstance. And whenever I teach on this passage, I always say, I I sum it up this way. In the biblical terms, love is hard work. Because love, in biblical terms, is all about putting the needs of somebody else first. Love, in biblical terms, it's not primarily the, saint, the, the, the Valentine's Day love where you're sitting next to the person that you're just romantically in love with and you hear birds singing every time you look into each other's eyes and you just feel so happy about each other. Love is keeping no record of wrong. Which means... You've been wronged. Love is about being patient, which means you don't actually want to be patient with someone. Love is about bearing with people even when you would rather not. It's really about giving people the benefit of the doubt, which is what you really want to receive in your life. And this love, according to Paul, is the most excellent way. This is what greatness looks like. So with that in mind, here is what I think true greatness looks like for us as individuals. True greatness is about putting others first in self-sacrificial love. True greatness is about putting others first in self-sacrificial love, just like Jesus did. We're just following what he did. And of course, as Christians, we know that our love for others flows out of our love for God, Uh, when when someone approached Jesus and they asked him hey Jesus what's the greatest command in the law? he couldn't really just give him one he had to give him two (laughs) so he kind of took two and mushed them together he said this the greatest command is this he says love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and greatest command and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law And the prophets hang on these two commandments. You see, Jesus understood that the only way that we were going to love others is if we lived lives that were just seeped in the love of God. When you know that God loves you and sees you as precious enough to die for, that frees you up to say, okay, I can love anyone. I can give my life in self-sacrificial service because I don't have to work for my own salvation. It's already been accomplished. It frees us up to live a life of self-sacrificial service. Now, there's good news and there's bad news about this. First of all, this is the good news. I mean, I'm sorry, the bad news. We'll start with the bad news. The bad news is that this is not the world's definition of greatness. It's not about what you achieve, what you accumulate, or what you look like. And as a result, it probably won't make you famous. They probably won't write magazine articles about how you live a life of self-sacrificial love to others. Um, You won't make it onto TV TV. In fact, you you might even have friends that think you're weird. They might think, man, you could accomplish so much more in life. You could accumulate so much more if you stopped giving all your money away. You could do so much greater things if you stopped giving your time to others. The bad news is, this is not the world's definition of greatness. And so you probably won't be famous because of it. But here's the good news. This is not the world's definition of greatness. It's not about what you achieve what you accumulate or what you look like. And as a result, anyone can get in on this definition of greatness. So unlike the world's definition of greatness, which is basically out of reach for most of us, this one is available to any human who is alive and breathing. Because as you look around this room and you see other human beings, you know that every person in this room is an opportunity for you to practice greatness. Because greatness is loving other people with a self-sacrificial love. So no matter where you go, whether you're at work or in a church or, um, you know, at a restaurant, you look at people and you can just say, there's an opportunity for greatness. There's an opportunity for greatness. There's an opportunity for greatness. Greatness is available to anyone at any moment in the world, in the kingdom of God. So that's what it looks like for us as an individual. But what does it look like for us as a church? For you here at Grace Chapel as a congregation, what would greatness look like? And let me give you this simple phrase to consider. True greatness for Grace Chapel means that anyone is welcome and everyone is welcomed. Anyone is welcome and everyone is welcome. Here's here's what I mean by that. Um, Jesus, remember what Jesus said in verse 37, he says whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Now it's very hard for us to imagine how we would react if Jesus walked through the door of our church, right? (laughs) Or if somehow the presence of God walked in the front door. It's very hard for us to, like, have a concept of what we would do and how we'd react so let, let me explain it this way. I'm going to show you a few pictures of some celebrities. Maybe you'll know some of them. Um, so Brad Pitt and Chaz, Chad, Chadwick um, Bossman. So he's the Black Panther, if you know that. Brad Pitt's all over the place. I think he won uh, an Academy Award or a Golden Globes or something this year. Um, so maybe you guys, anyone recognize some of those people? Uh, or maybe this relates to you more, Beyonce or Millie Bobby Brown, any Stranger Things fans out there? Okay, two Stranger Things fans. All right, I don't... That says something, but okay. Uh, Millie Bobby Brown. Maybe you're like Mike Gore and your favorite celebrity of all time is Michael W. Smith. Anyone know Michael W. Smith? Yeah. Mike has a major man crush on this guy, so the next time you see him, tease him about it and tell him it comes from me. But I want you to just imagine... Pick your whatever your favorite of these celebrities is, or pick some celebrity in your mind, and just imagine that next Sunday they walk through your doors. For today, I'm just going to imagine Beyonce. Let's say Beyonce walked in through your doors, and you looked over there and, and you saw her. How would you respond as a church? Well, I'll tell you what would happen <laughs> everyone in here would find at least some moment during the day to go greet her. And if you went over there and you were just like, wow. <clears throat> Beyonce, we're so glad you're here. It's so exciting to see you. How did you hear about us? Um, Can I get you anything? And if she said, man, I'm just, I'm happy to be here, but I'd love a cup of coffee. What would you do? You'd be like, well, we have great coffee here. I'd be happy. I'd love to grab you some coffee. What do you want? Creamer, sugar, anything? Let me know. And then you would go, even if it was like three steps, you would go get her coffee, you'd bring, in, you'd bring it back to her and be like, thank you, I'm so glad that I could serve you. And then you would tell people for weeks and months and years about the day that you served coffee to Beyonce at your church. But listen, Jesus is saying that's that's how we should react for whoever walks through the door. That even no matter who they are, what they look like, where they stand on the social ladder, if they walk through the door, they should be welcomed in and given the celebrity treatment. Because he says, if you're welcoming the least of these, it's like you're welcoming Jesus and God himself. Can you imagine what would happen if we lived in a world where people were constantly trying to outdo each other in self-sacrificial service? <laughs> like every day you walked around and you met someone and they were just like trying to outserve each other? That would be a great world to live in. That is the kind of kingdom I want to be in. Imagine if this was the kind of church... Where everyone who walked through the door got the Beyonce treatment. That everyone who walks through the door, we all agreed, they are valued, they're famous in God's eyes, and we're gonna serve them and we're gonna be happy to serve. I mean, that's the kind of church that transforms a community. I believe that that's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that that's what God wants for you as a church, what he wants for us as individuals. And, and I believe he can do that through the Holy Spirit. So I just want to leave you with this simple prayer that you can pray as individuals and as, an, as, as a church. It's a prayer that I pray virtually every morning as part of my daily devotions. And the prayer is this. Lord, remind me that the greatest thing I can do today is love others through the love I have found in you. Remind me that the greatest thing I can do today is to love others through the love that I have found in you. You see, if there was a group of people that lived that way, that changes the world. And my prayer is that that would be true of all of us. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, thank you. Oh, man. Thank you so much for being a God that flips the world upside down. Thank you that in your kingdom, greatness is not measured by how high I climb or how much I achieve or what I look like, uh, but how I love. And thank you that the Holy Spirit wants to make me into a more loving person. I pray that you would do that. I pray for every believer here and just for Grace Chapel as a church. Just pray that you would fill this place with your love, that you would give us eyes to see people the way that you see them, that we would care for people, that we would give our lives in self-sacrificial love to others because that's what you did for us. We love you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.